0: Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Kind of wanted to do a little bit of uh, a synopsis of where we're going after we finish this study in Genesis, which we will finish it, although it doesn't... Seem like it. We will, we will finish it. I was talking to another pastor online, and he spent the last 26 weeks in Exodus, and I'm like right there with you. I know, I know what you're talking about. But uh, when we finish this series, uh, we're going to do a series called um, How to Walk Like an E-Christian, uh, basically how to live life in the spirit in today's online, social media-driven, selfie-driven, all of which I participate in world. Uh, But we're going to spend some time. How do you live out your life? How can you be a spirit-filled Christian, you know, in today's culture? Uh, And then, because we spent so much time, and we're still spending the next couple of weeks, but we'll be winding this down hopefully by the end of this month, uh, in this series called In the Beginning, Walking Through Genesis, we're going to walk through uh, a series called In the End, looking at end times. Now, we're not going to walk through the book of Revelation because that would take us another 20-some-odd weeks, but we are gonna look at overall a lot of what the Bible says about what's supposed to be happening in the end time because a lot of people are like, hey, are we in the last days, are we not? You know, if Jesus is coming back, it's imminent. Uh, so we're gonna look at what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, and then we're gonna do a series called Feed My Sheep because Jesus says, hey, feed my sheep. He tells uh, even uh, to Peter, hey, make sure you feed my sheep. He tells him that three, time, three times. Uh, but feeding the sheep is more about maturing the Christ follower but also about meeting the needs of the people in the community so we're going to do a little series talking about what that looks like because most congregations are inward focused it's all about getting people in the building uh, but what jesus teaches is all about the people in the building equipping and developing them so they can go out and meet the needs outside of the building so we're going to talk about that now uh, here's the thing let me give you a little bit of background on why we why we do this and i I think i did this before Uh, a lot of what we're talking about is called expositional teaching right that's where you walk through book a book of the bible or book after book verse by verse or chapter by chapter kind of explaining here's what it means here's the context here's the background scenario here's how it's relevant to us and that's a lot of what we do here but there's also called topical preaching where you take a topic like uh you know hunger or um you know racism or whatever, and you say, here's everything that the Bible says about that from beginning to end, all that the Bible says about these topics. Now, uh, there's also another one, which we don't do here, it's called lectionary preaching. It's where uh, there's, I don't have a book up here, but uh, usually denominations will do it where they print out a book every year or every couple of years, uh, and in that book it says, here's what whoever's preaching is supposed to preach this week, next week, whatever week, and, and... there's nothing wrong with that. I just don't think that some guy sitting in a corporate office should say, here's what should be preached. I think it's up to God to say, here's what this congregation needs, here's what this community needs, so here's what you need to be preaching on. And even though I put, hey, here's what we're going to be talk, speaking about and preaching on the next couple of weeks all the way through into the fall, if God changes that, we won't because he's the one who says here's here's what you need to hear here's what I want you to preach some people are okay with that some people are not now I get it that some pastors only do one or the other There are whole denominations all they do is topical some just do the lectionary some just do expositional they won't do anything else but there's a reason that we do both because if you look in the Bible um, topical is how Jesus taught right when you read through the Gospels, Jesus was walking along. He bumps into this person who needed healing or who needed something. And he brings out, hey, here's what the Old Testament says about your situation. Here's how it applies to your life. Or someone was like, hey, this is this is my life situation right now. And he says, hey, here's how spiritually your life can be changed or transformed. And we now take that as, hey, that's how we're to address this topic. So he taught Topically, Paul, almost all of Paul's letters, except for the uh, pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, were letters where he was responding to inquiries from people. People wrote and said, hey, how do we do this? How do we live our lives this way? What about sexuality? What about homosexuality? What about eating foods that other people worshipped over? What about foods with gluten in it? What about foods with vegan? All that stuff. And he said, well, here's what the word says. So he was... Pretty much teaching topically responding to here's what your topic is what you're asking about and here's what the Bible says about it Uh, but the reason we teach expositionally is because that's how we find out what they taught topically the only way we know what Jesus taught from A to Z on a certain topic is if we teach what Jesus taught from A to Z see if we look at just what Jesus taught in John we miss a lot of what Jesus taught in Mark or in Matthew that's not included in John. Or if we look just at Matthew or Mark, we miss a lot of what's in Luke, and John has so much stuff that's not in any of the other three Gospels. And the same is true when we look at what what Paul did, without looking at Paul's life and knowing why he was impacted and knowing why he, yeah, he held strong to the Old Testament as the foundation, but he was like, that's not the way to salvation And we know that because we look at Paul's life. And we know that because we look at what the Old Testament said. And we know that because when Paul says that Jesus is throughout, we can see that because we've been walking through parts of it. So um, that's just the way we do it here. We teach both. Uh, We teach topically. We teach expositionally. And we've been kind of going expositionally through Genesis since January, we are going to wind it down. It's a long time to be in one book, but hopefully people are able to look at Genesis in a new light and say, yeah, a lot of the stuff in there, I believe it, it's true, I see where, you know, even though we've been going through Genesis, we've been jumping out of there into the New Testament to see how it applies. Now, what we're going to look at today um, is kind of one of those passages that you normally wouldn't get to. A lot of pastors would skip over it if you do the hunt and pet method. You just hunt through the Bible, what am I going to preach on this week? And then you know pick at this or pick at that. But when you teach expositionally, you hit a lot of stuff that's uncomfortable, right? And, and to give you some background, I'm going to jump back, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. but I'm going to jump back to Genesis chapter three, to give you some background on where we're going this morning, because in Genesis chapter three, this is what we read. We're all familiar with this. We have w- went over it a couple of times. Uh, and this is after the fall. Make sure I'm not here. Okay. After the fall, after sin has entered the world. And then this is what God says to Eve specifically. To the woman, Eve, he said, I will greatly multiply your grief and your suffering in pregnancy and the pangs of childbearing. With spasms of distress, you will bring forth children. And then he adds this. yet your desire and craving will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In other words, he says as a consequence of sin, now that you guys are cut off from the goodness and the graciousness of God, although he still loved them and cared for them and and protected them, uh, they were cut off from him spiritually, and as a result, instead of this equal man and woman thing that God intended when he created humanity, uh, you'd have a one-sided thing where he said your desire and craving is going to be for your husband, and that's not to say that every woman on the planet is, is, is although every girl is crazy for a well-dressed man. okay, sorry, but not to say that every woman is looking for a man, but that's what he's saying, that the heart and the desire for most women is going to be for a husband, but he says instead of being partners, what men are going to do is rule over you which was not God's desire. And in the passage that we read today, it's a hard one, uh, it's it, it, it involved, It's basically men in power, um, children are out of the room, right, yeah, sexually abusing women, using their power, their resources to take advantage of women, specifically one. And, and again, um, this is one of those passages where if it were up to me just, hey, let's just, preach about good stuff that's going to go out and inspire people, you wouldn't hear this. It doesn't show up at Easter. It doesn't show up at Christmas. It's not an inspiring passage. It contains some of the nasty, horrible, tragic things that are in the Bible, but God puts those things in there for a reason. They're not in there as an endorsement from God that, yes, when men kind of force themselves on women, God's not saying amen to that. When men are kind of like putting themselves in power and oppressing other people, God's not saying amen to that. When men are enslaving people and hating people because of their race, God's not saying amen to that. It's not in the Bible because God endorses it. It's in the Bible because it's an indictment against humanity. God's not saying, yes, this is what I want you to be like. God is holding it up and saying, this is what humanity is like. This is what we do to one another. And this is why we need Jesus. So uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 34. We're going to start in 33, though, halfway down through 33, and uh, chapter 33, verse 18. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you. Um, And, again, this is going to get a little harsh, but bear with me. I'm going to try to clean it up. It says in verse 18, After Jacob came from Padamaran, He arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he brought from the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar, and he called it El Elohi Israel, which means mighty God of Israel. Now, uh, just to give you some background on Canaan, okay? Uh, You don't need to know the, the map and layout of it. But in early Canaan times, first of all, that was the land. That Abraham was in when God said I'm gonna give all of this to you this is meant to be your inheritance right and so in uh, the land of Canaan they were like uh, it was called a, a country of Canaan really uh, there were people that were known as the Canaanites we're in America we're known as Americans they were in Canaan they were lo- known as the Canaanites in the New Testament time they were known as Phoenicians uh, but here's the thing their land was they had a different religious system, I'm trying to clean this up, than most other nations, okay? Now, they weren't barbaric, Fred Flintstone-type people, although that would be cool, because they had the Brig Bonasaurus Burgers, but Fred Flintstone-type people, as most people think. In fact, uh, when they did archaeological diggings, they found what they believed to be the first recorded alphabetized writing system, not a writing system with pictures, you know, dog, cat, house, whatever, but alphabetized writing system, the earliest one they found so far has been in the land of Canaan. So these were pretty smart people. But they had a different religious system. Their religious system was based mostly on sexuality. Now, everything I'm about to tell you is not just biblical because they did some archeological digging in and around that area, and what they found, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but uh, anyone read the book of uh, Joshua? No, Joshua fought the battle at Jericho, the old school song they taught you when they were putting the flannel lints in Sunday school. But um, Jericho and Ai, both cities that Joshua overtook, what they found was not just those two cities, uh, so the Bible didn't just make those up, but they also found that those cities and a bunch of other cities in and around the land of Canaan, somewhere around 1250 to 1200 BC, that they just seem to have all been destroyed about that time. Now they also separately, they're not saying it's God, they also separately date the possible time when Moses and Joshua would have crossed into the land of Canaan and systematically took over all of those cities somewhere in that same time. Now here's here's the disclaimer. Their disclaimer is, although that's possible that it would have happened at this time, the cities that we found destroyed don't match the destruction that's listed in the Bible. Now we did find that these cities were all destroyed, just like the Bible says, you know, one by one, they were all destroyed around the same time, but their disclaimer is, didn't happen about the same time. But also what they found is the same thing the Bible says about just the entire Canaanite culture, that it was very sexually oriented. Uh, and they worshiped a God called Baal. That word Baal literally means Lord, uh, and he was the Lord or God of fertility because they wanted crops, the God of rain, and the God of sexuality. If you wanted healthy children, you wanted offspring, you prayed to or worshiped to Baal. Now, interesting, because he was the God of rain, they called him the storm God or the God of Thunder, thank you. I knew somebody had to get their crew. God, not saying that he's Thor, but just saying we can see where a lot of these stories come from. And because they worshipped him ah, ah, sexually, what they would do is worship him sexually. I just, I just leave it there at that. So they go to the temple, they would sing a few songs. In between or during. Instead of, have you ever seen those churches where people come up to the altar and they're raising their hands? They did something different. I just leave it there. and just, just, I'm going to stop there. Yeah. They worshiped him sexually. That was their way of worshiping him. That was the culture that they lived in. And that is why throughout the Bible with Abraham, Isaac, all of them said, hey, don't go get a wife from Canaan. Go back and get one from our family Who has the same faith because they were very sexually promiscuous and their sense of worship was a little bit more free rolling i don't know how to say it so i'm going to stop before i get in trouble so uh jump up to verse 1 chapter 34. now dinah the daughter leah had born to jacob went out to visit the woman of the land she was about this time i want to say uh probably in her 20s she was the older sister of joseph who was one of the youngest, Benjamin was the youngest. Joseph was probably in his teens, 14 to 17, uh, when he got beaten up by his brothers, and we'll get to that next week. Uh, so she would have been a few years older, somewhere in her 20s, some say she could have been as early as you know mid-20s to uh, late 20s or even 30s. Uh, but when verse two, when Shechem son of Hamor the Hevite, the ruler of the area, saw her, he took her and violated her, and some versions say raped her, some versions say forced himself on her. Um, Some theologians say because of the language, it wasn't necessarily a full-on force. It was more because of his position and power and her innocence, he manipulated her. Verse three, his heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. Again, which is why they lean towards, he didn't physically force himself on her, but he manipulated her into a situation that she otherwise would not have gotten into. And Shechem said to his father, Hamer, Get me this girl as my wife. Verse 5, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamer, went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the field. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. And again, depending on how you read it, this sounds like they're not angry because he tricked her, they're angry because he forced himself on her. Verse eight, but Hamer said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us, the land is open to you, live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Now here's, here's actually what happened, just, just for sake of time to summarize the next couple of verses. The brothers say, oh, heck no. There's no way we can do that. So what they say is, because they're looking for a way to get back to them, what they say is, we can trade. You can take our daughters and sisters and whatever as your wives, and we'll take yours. But we can only do that if you've been circumcised, because that's our culture. We have to be circumcised. And so the men go back and say, done deal. Let's all get circumcised. And then drop down to verse 18. Their proposal seemed good to Hamer and his son Shechem. The young man who was the most honored of all his father's household. So again, it was a position of uh, wealth and authority. Lost no time in doing what they said. Because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamer and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters, and they can marry ours. But the men will consent to live with us as one people, only on the condition that our males be circumcised, as they themselves are. And note this. Verse 23, won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them, and they will settle among us. Their understanding and their intent was not that, hey, we'll do a fair trade, which in my mind I was wondering because if my son had done that, when I and the father come, as the father comes in and he says, well, I did it because I want to marry her, I'm not going to take his side because wrong is wrong. But if my intent is also to regularly abuse people and to take what I want, then I'm not gonna have a problem when my son abuses someone or takes what he wants. And this was their culture. This is what they did. Verse 24, all the men went out to the city gate and agreed with Hamer and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon, who's the second born, and Levi, who we get the Levitical priesthood from, Dana's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Now, here's the thing, and I'm giving props to them, because this is a city. It doesn't say a village, it doesn't say a town, which means there were approximately anywhere from 500 to several thousand men alone in the city. And although I can imagine a grown man being circumcised wouldn't be up to standing up and fighting back. Still for two men to go throughout the city. Now, we might say, you know, vengeance is mine, say in the Lord, but I gotta tell you, if it were my sister or my daughter, and way, way back, well before I was a Christ follower, when my sister was physically abused by a guy, I went through the streets with a baseball bat looking for him, not proud of it, but I know where they're coming from, and I know where you would be coming from if it were your sister, or your daughter, maybe now we have the grace of God, but there was a time when all of us would have went through that city thinking the same thing, not saying it's right, just saying I understand. But then, in this verse 27, the sons of Jacob, meaning the other two, or uh, the other ten, came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. And they carried off all of their wealth and all of their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. They did to them what the Canaanites were going to do to Jacob's family. Because they said, hey, let's intermarry with them, but we're going to take everything, all of their cattle, all of their women, Everything will be ours. And this is what they ended up doing to them in verse 30. Then Jacob, who sounds like the voice of reason, said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Now, here's the most amazing thing to me that I found about this whole passage is that nowhere, and I'm not saying it's right, but nowhere else does God even bring this up. Dinah's name is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. When Paul is talking about the way we should treat women, he doesn't mention her name. It's almost as if God's last comment on this whole commentary is, don't treat women like prostitutes like property, like you have a right to do what you want to them. And we live in a culture today where yes, in most of the places, prostitution is illegal unless you put it on the internet and call an entertainment, then you can charge for it. That's the culture that we live in. But that's not the way that God wants us to treat women. That's not the way that God brings out in his word about how women should be treated. But here's the church, hey we should treat women one way and no disrespect, but here's even women in the culture I should be able to do whatever I want. You should but if you're contributing to the culture that says yes men can look at you, treat you and buy you like sexual property, if every single TV show, and I'm not saying that you know, people say, oh, they're watching too many games, that's where violence comes in, no. But if every single TV show, and every single movie is saying, hey, this is the way women should be treated, and then a guy treats them that way, and then you're putting him in jail they're losing their jobs and again this isn't a ceo thing this isn't a a hollywood director thing this isn't a republican or democrat or political thing this is a sin thing and this is not the only culture i know we're americanized on the planet that treats women like property And I thank God that we have laws that try to help, whether it be women or races or whatever, try to put people on equal footing. But in many nations, that is not the case. Women don't have a voice because property can't speak. But we in the church, we have to do better at treating women the way that God sees them. Because that's the only way that the world is gonna see how to treat women. They're not gonna know God wants women treated a certain way unless they see us in the church treating women that way. And God's perspective, and I know a lot of people say, well, God did this and God did that. And, you know, it says in the Bible all these horrific things about women being abused. That's not God saying that's the way I want women treated. Because going back, uh, a lot of verses, so just just bear with me, Uh, going back to Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image. In a lot of your versions, it says man. The word is humanity. Humanity is comprised of men and women, both. God wanted both created in his image and let them, meaning mankind, have complete authority. God's original intent is that men and women would work together and serve together and grow together, not one over the other, but each next to each other. And then in verse 2, where we're given more, or chapter 2, we're given more detail. When Adam is given names to all the livestock, it says, But for Adam there was not found a helper me, a suitable person, a teammate, or a co-worker who could join him on his life's journey of doing God's work. So what God did is he took the rib out of Adam, caused him to fall asleep, took one of his ribs that were part of his side, closed up the place with flesh, and then he created woman, and he brought him to man. God says, there is no one else on this planet that can work with you to do what I have called you to do side by side. So I'm going to create someone from you who is like you, who will join you in doing what I've called you to do. Uh, And then we're told in the book of Galatians, because a lot of people say, well, that's the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, Paul says there is no distinction between Jews or Greeks, Slaves are free, males are females. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are all one and the same. We may have different roles, but God sees us all the same. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're black or if you're white, if you're male or if you're female, God sees us all the same. We all have the same role, to proclaim the will of God to this world. And then we're told in 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, you are to treat older women like mothers and younger women like sisters in all purity. That word purity means clean and wholesome. He says, hey, if you're a God-honoring, Christ-following man, then every woman you see that you're not married to, you either treat her like your mom with respect and dignity, or you treat her like family, like your sister, with cleanliness and wholesomeness and dignity. But if you are married, Then he gives us this command, this one specifically for the guys. Likewise, conduct your married lives with understanding and although your wife may be weaker physically, meaning she's not spiritually, but she may be weaker physically, you should respect her as a fellow heir of the gift of life. And this is the warning, if you don't, your prayers will be blocked. God says if you won't respect her, want to hear from you, if you won't treat your wife with the respect with which I've created her and the way I see her, then I want nothing to do with you. And the only way the world is going to know how to treat women and give them the respect they deserve is if we as the church speak up and say, hey, that's not right. Hey, this is not the way that we're supposed to treat women. Or hey, that's not the way that we're supposed to talk about her. Well, do you know her? No, I don't. But you know what? Since I don't, I got to treat her like as if she were my mother or my sister or even my daughter. Because if it was my daughter, there's no way I'm going to let you talk to her like that. That's the way that we're supposed to treat women. So as the band comes up, here's when I am going to ask us to do, I just want to spend a moment or two in prayer because this is a touchy subject. Whenever you talk about changing the culture, whenever you talk about doing something different or speaking up, it gets touchy. Because whenever you speak up, what does it mean? It means that you're saying, hey, you and the culture are wrong and we are right and then you have that contrast and you seem holier than now. And it's not about saying, hey, you're wrong. It's about saying this is right. Treating women with respect and dignity is right. Talking to them as if they deserve respect and dignity is right. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. God, we just pray that going forward that we would be the vessels that show the world how you see women that we would not just honor them and respect them with our words Sunday mornings in this place, but every single day, whether it be in our workplaces, in our homes, uh, at the butcher or baker or candle shop maker, or whether it be online, that we would honor and respect women and talk about them the way that you see them. As your beloved children, someone who was created in God's image, and someone who Jesus Christ died for, God impress that upon our hearts. And we pray this in the name of your Son Jesus Christ, and everyone said.